if hi my name is lou eisen and this is ring talk and we welcome you to a very special show if talent were height this man would be a thousand feet tall um his name is nigel collins he's the preeminent boxing writer in the world for a long time he's one of my true heroes he's been writing about professional boxing for more than 50 years and he's been writing about it better than any man alive uh he's had two terms as editor-in-chief of the ring magazine i mean i bought ring because he was writing for it uh other platforms that he's written for include espn.com hbo of course showtime ringside seat where he's a regular contributor and its articles are still absolutely magnificent boxing news ko magazine boxing illustrated world boxing uh his book boxing babylon was published in 1990 and you can still get that. It's a wonderful book. He was inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame unanimously in 2015. Uh, other honors include the Pennsylvania Boxing Hall of Fame, the Atlantic City Boxing Hall of Fame, and the Rocky Marciano Award for Excellence in Boxing Coverage. He's the benchmark. Nigel Collins is the benchmark against which all other boxing writers are measured. And then he also has won the prestigious James J. Walker Award for Long and Meritorious Service to Boxing that James J. Walker was the mayor of New York who legalized boxing in New York. That's an extremely rare and prestigious award. Nigel was born in England, but luckily for us, he now resides in the Philadelphia area. This is his new book, Hooking Off the Jab, with that wonderful photo of Terry Norris and Donald Curry. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Nigel Collins. Hey, I'm back. Great to see you. Yeah, it's just we've been trying to do this for a while, and now we're finally going to do it. Yes, you got sick, and then I got sick. I, I didn't believe it was happening, but one of those things. Firing against us. Yes. The the um, hooking off the jab, I loved it. And um, you have a, a million great stories in there. And the one that, had, that really touched my heart was the one on Sonny Banks. And... You know, people get overly dramatic when they describe the death of a fighter, but you did it so perfectly. I, I don't mean that in a sarcastic way. I mean, you did it in such a touching way. You just presented the raw truth, which was tough enough in itself. That was uh, actually that was an assignment that Bill Detloff gave me that I didn't want to do. <laughs> oh, really? But, um, he encouraged me and I'm damn glad that he did. Um, it was it was more like an investigative reporting job than like a straightforward feature. Um, and as you know, I got very close to the family who had actually managed Sonny Banks. And um, the person who could have given me some information didn't want to be interviewed. But uh, yeah, it was... Um, he was a sad person, you know, and I think uh, that um, fight with Williams was uh, Cleveland Williams was so stupid. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that it, like, I gave several theories and one of them was that the, the managers were just wanting to cash out, you know, uh, they had invested money in him. But um, I, I think that's the fight. Very often before somebody is fatally injured in a fight, there's a heavy beating with uh, Benny Kid Perret. It was Gene Fulmer. Right. You know? It was a lot of people. So 
I, I thought they were, you know, I hated them for that. <laughs> Good reason. But, uh, you know, I don't really know the news story. Maybe I, I gave an alternative that um, he was short of money. He wanted to get married and stuff like that. But um, and, and I was very lucky. Um, the, the gentleman who uh, was actually there that I quoted, Jeff Jowett, he's a friend of mine. And um, whenever there's an old fight that I didn't see, I, he's, he's a little bit older than me. And his description of it was, you know, very, very good. Um, and I was lucky to get that. And uh, it was also lucky um, to get a lot of the newspaper clippings uh, from, you know, all over. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, sad, but, um, you know, some boxing can be sad. But actually, a couple of people that I respect liked it, obviously, uh, Bill Detloff. And uh, Russell Peltz, the promoter and friend, yeah. uh, he said it was wonderful. So, so uh, you know, sad, had them both I think it was, yeah. And there was one thing that I couldn't do um, when it was actually in um, ringside seat. I had a sidebar about Leotis Martin, the guy he was fighting when he died. But the publisher couldn't just fit sidebars into the format of the book but anyway right. yeah he was uh he could punch and oh, he could punch yeah blind in one eye wasn't he um i don't know he had to quit but when he um you know his big win we knocked out sonny liston mm -hmm. and then he found out that he had uh detached retina he may right. have had it before you never know uh because a lot of these guys say you know uh, I'm going to fight anyway. And back then, they didn't have the they didn't have the laser surgery that we had today, and many right. can recover from torn retinas and stuff like that. Right. You know, it's interesting with Banks. Uh, there's, I mean, unfortunately, there's been so many incidents like that. I know Angelo Dundee told me that after the former fight, he spoke to Manuel Alfaro, the manager of of Benny Kidbrett, and he said he's done. He's a shot fighter, and he's got nothing left. And if you put him in with Griffith or anyone, he'll get killed. And he said, Alfaro said to him, if he does, I'll go to Cuba and get someone else. So <sighs> that I, I, I don't doubt that those managers um, did that. And unfortunately, it still goes on today because you obviously, being the premier boxing writer on the planet, you've seen tens, if not hundreds of thousands of fights where you must have been thinking, Nigel, what's the corner doing? This guy's been taking a beating yeah, this long. I, Why aren't I, they acting? Sometimes it's not necessarily what you're seeing, but you get a feeling. Mm -hmm. um, and usually that feeling's right. You just get a, a funny, okay, you know, this is bad. And, you know, because there was a lot of vicious fights back and forth that nobody's going to die. But um, this one quote that's been used quite a bit for me, um, the first fight between then Matthew Franklin um, who became Matthew Sab Muhammad, of course, and Marvin Johnson at the Spectrum right. was uh, even even more vicious than there when Matt won the title. Um, it was the only fight that I've covered ringside where I thought maybe both guys would die. Right, that was in Russell Peltz's book. That was a fantastic yeah. book. Yeah, that was, uh, I gave him the best quote. <laughs> That's right. You certainly do, as well as the best articles. I wrote the um, the forward or the introduction, not the forward, whatever. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Trying to tell some of the 
stories about Russell that most people don't know. <laughs> you don't, you're not going to remember this, but um, you were a not only tremendous inspiration, but I called the ring office 15, 20 years ago, maybe not that long ago, and I spoke to you because I wanted to do a book on George Dixon. I didn't know where to start. And I was so touched that you took like a half hour out of your schedule to talk to me and encourage me. Well, in the background, all I could hear is, Nigel, I need you to look at this photo now. <laughs> Nigel, you got to look at the article now. There's no time. Now. Tell him you later. No, I'm talking to this young man. It's rude. I will look at that in a minute. And so I really wanted to say thank you because you were so polite while you were being assaulted by all these different voices. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I like to help people, you know, especially they're going to try and do something in boxing. And, um, you know, it's uh, also the writers. I, I gave many writers their voice. And, and it wasn't just because I was altruistic. It was because they were good. <laughs> and, well, um, well. yeah, and, you know, the more they write, the better they got. Uh, I, I, real, I had some sense of that. And, um, of course, Bill was one of them. Don Stradley was one of them. Uh, Eric Raskin was one of them. A whole whole pile of guys. But there was a lot of dead wood at the ring at that mm -hmm. particular point as far as writers go. And uh, I didn't want that because I would spend an awful lot of time rewriting. Uh, I was good at rewriting, but it, you just didn't have the time with such a small staff. Right. So, it wasn't just to be nice to these guys. Uh, it was it was that they could they could help me too because their material was pretty clean, you know. Uh, so you know it worked both ways. I helped them and they helped me. I didn't help you, but the the Dixon book was written. Have you read it? Yes, my friend Jason Winders wrote it. I helped him with it with some of the information. I'm I'm trying to pivot and take my information and do a book on, on George Budge Byers or the original George Godfrey, of which I now have a lot of information on. Oh, well, that's good. Hurry up, write everybody to the punch. <laughs> yes, that's, I think that's the important thing. I have a book I just finished that'll be coming out in the oh, next yeah? couple of weeks, Boxing's Greatest Controversies. I picked 25 fights and then- There's plenty of those. Yeah, that should be interesting. Well, hopefully, I mean, when I got it back from the publisher, there were mistakes added in that I hadn't sent in my original manuscript. So that was kind of frustrating. But, you know, as Angelo said, yelling or getting angry at someone's not going to progress your cause. So just be calm and polite. And well, you know, sometimes, sometimes, um, whether it's a book or a story, magazine, if the person you're talking to, um, is, is good at their job. They'll tell you why. Um, I, I, I wrote a book that um, it was finally published, and uh, but one of the agents that turned it down said, um, well, this is really good and you're well written, it's funny in parts, and uh, but publishers um, like a story with an arc. And it didn't have an arc. And sort of slammed the brakes on. But right. I afterwards found somebody that was a very important person in the book that I hadn't seen in 45 years. And I finally found them. And I went to Mexico to, uh, to visit this old friend of mine. And the arc was completed. 
because he's in the very beginning and the very end. And um, it, uh, you know, so that's maybe if I'd have had that when I sent it to the um, literary agent, he would have helped me. But he did help me by telling me that's what I needed. I needed an art. We, we have, a, a, I don't know if you know, a, a Anthony Morrow writes in that my grandfather is Leonard Morrow. I don't know who Leonard Morrow is. Do you well, know I, I guess he was probably a fighter or something. I'm not really familiar with Oh, him. okay, sorry. I thought it might be someone that you knew. Um, so I don't know much at all. You know, this is, this is me to put this in there. A lot of people think I'm an historian. I'm not an historian. I'm a guy who knows where to look. Right, but you you were great on the Sunny. I mean, you've been on so many documentaries, and the Sunny Listening documentary, you were wonderful in that. But you displayed in the documentary and in your writing the same quality. I think the most recent example is Bud Crawford when he was perfectly calm in the pocket against Daryl Spence. Mm, man, that was magnificent. He was wonderful. He was like a throwback to the old time fighters. But it reminded me of you because. You don't get caught up in all these. This, you know, I saw Elvis and I saw this and I saw that. You're very, very calm. So I emailed you after the listing thing, and I said Angelo told me that his brother told him it was a hot shot by the mob, and you said yes, that's one of the theories, but no one knows definitively what actually killed Sunday Liston, and we may never know. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the people involved are they're dead now too. Right. <laughs> you know I mean? uh, so, um, Sean Assel wrote the book that that uh, Showtime documentary was based on, and mm -hmm. he attacked it like a cold case. He wasn't. He wasn't. He was a writer, but not a boxing writer per se. And um, he gave his hint to who he thought it was, but you know. Um, there, I think that, you know, the, the thing is, Las Vegas was created by gangsters. Mm -hmm. uh, and the gangsters are still there. Yeah. They just wear better suits these days and have corporate names. And uh, they're not killing people. But, um, you know, the, the way that fights are fixed now are, are through the officials, not by giving anybody people money. So, Right. And, and, and I've told some people that, like, if you if you have a fight in uh, Las Vegas, say Floyd Mayweather, who had you know an awful lot of fans and very good in the pay per view, um, and he fights somebody else that's not quite as popular, and it's close, in Vegas they're always going to go to the guy who creates the most money. Right. You know. So say Pacquiao had given um, Mayweather a good fight. Uh, but lost a close decision. Um, they, they, they would all, they always give it to the guy who creates the most money because the gaming industry runs the state. Right. And, and, you know, in, in that regards with those fighters, it, um, I mean, Larry Merchant said that, and I'm sure you know this, but he said that, uh, the, the the actual mob left, but they were replaced by the sanctioning bodies. And the thing is, the fans, I think there's a general uprising all over the planet over finances, over politics, everywhere. But fans in boxing, I mean, when they see some guy who's dominated another fighter, and, and now on, on every broadcast, on ESPN, Showtime, The Zone, 
whatever broadcast you're watching, there will always be, as you know, Nigel, there will always be some blow-by-blow uh, -blow announcer who says, well, he has scored three knockdowns, he's dominated the fight, but, you know, it's boxing. We don't know how the judges see it. Oh, yeah. And that's I mean, point. it's, well, you, you know, there's a piece in the book. Um, the PED uh, yeah, uh, I, I, I stole the, the title from the Touch of Evil movie. Oh, Touch of Larceny. That's, that's what it was called. Boxing's mm -hmm. open, open Secret, where I explain how they do it. And uh, it's it really heartbreaking for the fighters who should have won that don't. Uh, I, I don't know how, you know, Every now and then you see a, a, a fighter attack a, a judge, or, but, um, you know, that's not going to do much good. Yeah, it's, um, well, the whole thing is that I tell people if you can't write about boxing, you can't write about anything because mm -hmm. everything's going on and, you know, there's all sorts of stuff that, uh, you know, behind the scenes and then there's the fighters and then there's the fights themselves and, uh you know, their stories. I have a highly unscientific uh, theory that most all boxers came to boxing emotionally wounded. Uh, they didn't get emotionally wounded in boxing. They, you know, whatever it was, even if, you know, just a poor kid who didn't have enough food, that would be traumatic. You right. know? Or Ali who had his bike stolen, who was genuinely upset. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's, um, sometimes I think I sold, sold my soul to the devil <laughs> to get involved in this, but, um, Hey, it's what I can do. That's basically well, it. It's what, it's what I was given, you know? Um, when we had Bill Deloff on, I asked him this question and ask you, and I'm sure you have the same answer, but you know, the criminal element's been involved in boxing for since the 1700s. There's, is there really any way to ferret it out? I mean, it really seems like it's part and parcel of the game. Well, you, you mentioned the alphabet groups. And um, I followed Burt Sugar as being, you know, one of their main adversaries. Um, I, I created, uh, I bought back the ring championship belt. Uh, we came up with a new uh, championship uh, you know, who could do it, who couldn't. A very basic set of the rules based on old time rules. And um, it got a lot of publicity and ESPN um, had me up there to Bristol and they were very, very um, positive. They, they, they liked what was happening. But the thing is, i tell you this little thing. There was a manager, I won't name him, he's passed on now, friendly guy, called me up when we first started um, this new uh, thing. And um, he was asking me some questions. Well, he seemed very favorable, you know, he liked it. And I said, well, listen, I just want to tell you something. I said, you can't buy your way up the rankings. You know, we, we don't do that. You know, uh, you know, you go to one of their conventions, they give them a lot of money. Um, so he never called me back again after I told him that. 
because the managers and the promoters and to a good degree, they're all complicit. And um, I want to scream every time they say on Showtime, it's the four belt era. (laughs) That's what they call it. And I've I've always the guy said there's one world that can only one world champion. I mean, that's That's just so simple. But um, so I think the alphabet organizations, if we could wave a magic wand and they'd all disappear instead of multiplying, um, that would be a huge step because the people, um, managers, promoters, networks, whoever else is uh, trying to, uh, you know, do things their own way would be much more difficult. Right. Uh, I, there's a manager promoter here or not here, excuse me, in, in New York. And we always debate about um, or argue about the in a friendly way about the IBF. And he says, because I wrote a chapter about the criminality in my in my book. And he said, they're not criminals. And he mentioned four or five guys. And I said, but they're all in prison. They were all <laughs> FBI caught all of them. Well, the FBI is wrong, but they were convicted in court. The court's wrong. Well, not everyone can always be wrong all the time. It's just not possible. They, they well, were of course, Bob Lee did spend some time in prison mm-hmm. and banned from boxing forever. But the main charge he was acquitted on, I think it was the old tax thing, you know, uh, like they called Al Capone. Right. Um, I, I can't remember which one of the... Um, the felonies he'd been charged with, but it was the least of of the crimes. <laughs> yeah, there 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 was um, a fighter from Canada, cruiserweight Troy Ross. Mm-hmm. And, I never heard. Yeah, and he's Canadian Olympian, and he fought in Germany for sour against a Sauerland fighter. Won, I can't remember what it was, and he dropped the guy twice. On one knockdown, the referee helped the boxer up like he lifted him up and, and of course troy's trainers screaming you're not allowed to do right. that that fight should be over and and um and, and of course it goes it it goes uh, to a cards and troy loses and then i read in the fbi report that that was one of the fights that the ibf had made sure that their champion because troy hadn't wouldn't sign with them but their champion prevailed and I, I, I sat there in in disbelief, but this has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. And, yeah, you know, it, they, it, it is. Yeah, and it's sad. I, think, I don't think you could ever get rid of all of the uh, hanky-panky, but, um, and, and now I don't think you can uh, get rid of the alphabet groups. Um, I mean, I fought them for years, years and years. And when we had the new championship policy, that was the closest we ever got. Now, here I tell you something. Um, Jim Lampley and uh, Larry Merchant, I'm friendly with them, you know. Larry Merchant used to live in Philly um, when he was the sports editor of the Daily News there. Um, it's, it's just it's just the way it is, you know. Um, they were very supportive on uh, at first on HBO. They would mention, you know, it's for the WBC and the ring belt. And then um, they decided, not obviously the on-air talent, uh, the corporate uh, 
uh, entity decided that uh, he told the broadcasters not to mention the ring championship anymore. Now, HBO's gone now. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, they ran uh, it into the ground. Yeah, I mean, it was, they, it was building. And, and when you've got, you know, Larry Merchant and Jim Lampley, Lampley sent me a, um, an email uh, that I guess he wasn't supposed to send because, but he's not there now and neither is the person who sent him the email uh, telling them that uh, not to mention the Ring Magazine Championship. Uh, so that, that, that ended it. Now they mention it all the time. But right. they're still, the managers and promoters are still taking huge chunks of money out of the fighter's purse to pay these organizations. It's nuts. The fighters are just so anxious to get to a certain point. But when they do, they have power. And um, I think one of the fighters who decided that he wouldn't pay any of the sanctioning fees, he'd just fight for our belt, was um, the guy that knocked out um, Roy Jones the second time. Uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, and uh, you know, even Lennox Lewis, when he uh, finally unified the, the title, um, I went out to, um, it was a photo shoot, an interview. He was filming um, a commercial somewhere in New York and there's a lot of downtime when they're filming. And he said, well, you know, I wish we could melt all the belts down and make one. And I said, well, here it is. You know, here's here's the ring belt. Um, that represents a real champion, not a titleist, not a belt holder. And um, like they say, it used to be back, uh, I guess it sort of ended around the 60s and the 70s, that uh, boxing fans could name every contender in all eight weight classes. I was about to say that. Who yeah. could do that, you know? Yeah. Um, but greed. You know, let's face it, practically all the problems in this world are caused by greed. And uh, boxing's right in there. Let's talk about something good about boxing. <laughs> well, what, what, here's, yes, but I have one question, which has always puzzled me. The, the, I mean, boxing's huge in England, and boxing's huge in Germany, and but the majority of revenues from sanctioning bodies come from the United States. How come the United States can't have more power and how it's run it well basically the main thing is money okay okay they pay more but the other thing is if you're living say in england i, I remember ricky hatton was so excited to fight in las vegas the bright lights you know um they want to do that and it used to be more they wanted to fight at madison square garden Right. Well, that's died down now because there's more fights in Brooklyn than there are in, in Manhattan these days. And, um, that, you know, they want that. Now, practically everybody that uh, I gave a championship belt to knew what it represented. But um, maybe they just weren't brave enough to go against the flow. Was Muhammad Ali the most special person you ever met in your entire life? Well, um, I didn't really meet him. And, oh, okay. and, and much, yeah. Did you read the uh, the yeah, you, you left wrote around his funeral? Yeah. Yeah, you left um, before the fight. I thought you'd met him otherwise. 
No, um, I, I told basically, you know, all of it uh, in those three. Those three stories were written under deadline um, in a matter of just a couple of days. And um, my editor said I knocked the ball out of the park, you know. Yeah, you um, did. And uh, the thing the thing that I think uh, made a difference was um, after the funeral itself, the day of the funeral itself, um, uh, most everybody in the media interviewed other fighters or people that are involved in boxing. I interviewed the people who were waiting outside to go in. And, you know, a lot of them, they had a relationship with them, you know, you know, he used to go to school with my brother and, and things like that. So uh, what I've tried to do in my, for a long time now is try and find an angle nobody else is using because there's a lot of cu cookie cutter stories out there, especially now the Internet, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, newspapers used to have good writers uh, at one point. Uh, so I always try to look at what things are maybe a little bit different so, you know, whether the story is good or not, um, that's what I try to do. Right. I know that uh, there's a misconception in the print media anyways that um, certainly in Canada, but also in the States, except for England, uh, that they just don't cover boxing. So I haven't seen a fight covered in a local or national newspaper. Only one newspaper in Canada, a conservative paper, gives it a bit of coverage. Well, but, you know, obviously newspapers are all dying. So that's that's right. a big part of it. Um, right. But uh, it, it wasn't, you know, things were going down as far as coverage was concerned before the Internet. Mm -hmm. But uh, at least, you know, we, we had two newspapers in Philadelphia. We have four at once. Uh, and, and they all covered boxing. But then it got, okay. They've only got enough in the budget to go to Las Vegas three times this year or something like that, you know, and um, it, it's like um, Bernard Fernandez, who was a longtime boxing Great writer. writer. Yeah, um, he used to always say the same thing that, um, you know, the Eagles and the Phillies, um, if they were lions, they eat the they eat the good part, you know, and um, boxing's left over for the buzzards, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's every. I know in Canada that all the major networks have got rid of all the sports programming. So you'll have the weather girl give the weather, and then she'll have the Toronto Blue Jays or the Toronto Maple Leafs score, and that's it. Well, what happened is that um, sports editors uh, in the newspaper, towards the you know the last ten fifteen years of their existence, and naturally on TV, they don't know anything about boxing. So if somebody gets killed, they're going to run it. If somebody gets arrested, they're going to run it. Mm -hmm. But you could have had one of the greatest fights of all time on Saturday night, and they won't mention it. Why? Because they don't know. Now, the thing that they should do is learn. <laughs> learn but they about won't. it. Uh, you know, but uh, they, they haven't. And uh, all of the boxing writers who, who did the boxing beats were, were all laid off. Uh, you know, uh, I know Bernie, he, he took like one of those severance packages because he knew he was going to get the axe anyway. And a lot of writers like that. Um, there's a, yeah, there's a guy here Ring in Toronto. Magazine's mostly digital now. You know? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So. There was the guy here who retired from a newspaper, the Toronto Sun, Steve Buffery. He wrote about boxing for 40 years, 40, 50 years. And when I asked him why he retired, he said, I got tired of being yelled at. Why yell at me? I'm just proposing a boxing story. And you why know the thing, the strange thing is, boxing generates a huge amount of money. Yeah. More uh, than UFC, more than MMA, but they just won't listen to the numbers. Uh, you know, the one between um, the latest fight uh, with Crawford and mm -hmm. Ennis, they were surprised that they sold 700,000 pay-per-views because I don't think Crawford had had, had even up to 200,000 and, and his other's pay-per-views. And that's why Bob Larum let him go. But when you make a big fight and uh, people want it, and um, what was that fight? Um, oh. Anthony Joshua? No, it was the fight that, um, a lightweight fight, let me see. Uh, Amy Lomachenko. No. Givante Davis. Oh, okay. And, yeah. Garcia. And, yeah, and Garcia. Um, they would have been happy with 500,000 pay-per-views, but they had like a million point two. That was a huge surprise. And um, me and Bill Detloff often go to a bar to watch a pay-per-view because we don't want to pay $100. <laughs> and... Um, we went to one, to one in Allentown where he lives, and what we called up on the phone, he said, well, it's already standing room only, but you can come if you want. And we went, and they, they only charged us $10 to get in, right? But the drinks were expensive. <laughs> so, you know, that's how they made their money. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that was a fight that was huge, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, I have to say, though, what I find extremely frustrating is when you speak to people on sports radio or television or newspapers and you say, you don't have to believe me, but numbers don't lie. Math never lies. So here's the gates for boxing for the previous five big fights. And here's the pay-per-view numbers and the live gates. And here's for UFC or MMA. And boxing always does better. And they just don't care. Well, I think also the uh, MMA fighters don't earn any much or as much money. Most of them. no, they what they because earn is it's sort of like a job, right? You're getting a right. salary. Yeah, it's, I mean, uh, those top fighters earn fifty grand on MMA. If you're yeah. a top fighter of the card, and that would be a per diem. Yeah, a, a middle class boxer would be happy with that, but the, not yeah. the big stars. Um, well, we 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 have a uh, Jerome Boots Ennis here in Philadelphia. Great where, fighter. Uh, great fighter. I've recovered a lot of his fights. His last fight was his toughest one. And he was I dominant. Mean, yeah, when he when he um, was fighting in the clubs around Philadelphia, you couldn't find out much about him. He knocked the guy out. And it was over, you know. But uh, his most recent fight, he he took some punches. Um, is he ready for Crawford? That, that's the fight a lot of people want to see. I'm not sure. I mean, He's a totally different kind of fighter than, uh, you know, um, 
Crawford doesn't. Crawford said that he just wants Charlo for the way Charlo treated him. Yeah. During yeah, the fight. But that fight with en with Ennis, it was. Um, I couldn't believe how good Bud was, and I already thought that he was the best fighter in the world. But some of the things he did were so subtle. When he was attacked, he didn't clinch. No. He put his hands up like that and pushed the guy back. Yeah, he. Nobody else does that. No, and when they I watched, hold. <laughs> yeah, and when I watched him fight Spence, it reminded me of reading about Jack Johnson or Sam Langford. It really did. The way that they could Johnson could stand in front of you and just turn his shoulder ever so slightly or turn his hips and avoid the punch. And he was so calm in the pocket. It was a like you were saying, it's a throwback. It's you're watching a brilliant guy from another era. Yeah. Um, now, you know, the, the fight when um, the monster from Japan fought the guy Scooter Fulton from Philadelphia with that yeah. great knockout. Um, it was Everybody would talk about who's the number one pound for pound. The pound for pound's horse shit anyway, but uh, right. know, it, it's it's a big deal with the fighters. And uh, I, 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 as spectacular as the knockout was against the guy I knew, um, who was undefeated and a good fighter, um, that seemed to be, you know, put him in number one. But uh, the fact that uh, Spence was a much better, you know, fighter, with more experience against good guys. And uh, yeah, the, the subtlety. I, you know, he is so relaxed in the ring. And that's very, 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 very hard. Somebody's trying to knock your head off. And most fighters are not relaxed. Like a guy like Roberto Duran was very relaxed. George Foreman in his second life as a boxer was very relaxed. Before he was just a wild guy throwing haymakers. Right. Um, yeah, but Bud Crawford, did you see any of the videos from the parade he had in Omaha? That was fantastic. It was unreal. I mean, yeah. it looked, the, the streets were packed. <laughs> Here he is with his fishing, fishing pole. And his and his sold off jeans. Uh, I mean, there were they. I I didn't even know until Crawford came along that there were any good fighters in Nebraska. No. But that they turned out. I I mean, I couldn't count the crowd. But sometimes when you got the long shot, you could see they were all the way down, maybe five or six deep on the sidewalk. And he's he's a lot happier now. <laughs> <laughs> you, you usually, you know, he's not the happiest guy in the world, but uh, he got the big win. He got the big one, money. And I think, I can't speak for him, but I think the people that turned out to support him was almost as important as the money. He finally oh, knew more important than the money, the, the response of the fans in, 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 in Omaha. Um He's also good friends with Warren Buffett. I mean, he keeps great company. <laughs> yeah, he does. I remember that. Yeah, it's um, he's a strange fighter. Um, there is a there is a story about him in the book, um, and uh, he's he's a lot of people think he's not a good interview. No, you're not a good interviewer. <laughs> that does you know some people are. Uh, I I've had problems with um, Pernell Whitaker, for instance. Um, 
uh, at one time when I was working on the KO magazine, they always had a big interview, KO interview, and um, had my questions already written, you know, and it was it was a phoner. I had my tape recorder and um, it was either yes, no, or I don't know. And that went on for about half an hour. And usually an interview is an hour or more. So I said, thank you very much and hung up. And I gave the tape recorder to the publisher and he says, oh, we're not going to print that. So, you know, most fighters are just absolutely delighted to get publicity. Um, he was he was a little bit difficult. <laughs> um, he was elevated to pound for pound at one time and he had a jacket made. You might remember the cover. It was like a oh, leather yeah. jacket. And it said pound for pound on it. Yeah, and he was like looking over his shoulder. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't. He wouldn't pose for any of anything else because, you know, when you want you want a lot of the standard shots with your clothes off and boxing poses. That's the bread and butter. Um, that was great for a cover, but he he wouldn't do anything else. Uh, Floyd Mayweather can was very difficult at times. Um, Floyd was is very interesting person in that. Um, he can be real asshole and a half an hour later he'll come up to you and apologize you know he's there is some sort of dual personality there you know yeah um, he apologized to larry merchant i i met i'm he apologized to larry great. Merchant. <laughs> he's gonna kick his ass yeah. <laughs> i'm i met floyd once for three seconds i was with angelo yeah. dundee and so he only looked at me because I'm with Angelo Dundee and he just said, Hey, I said, oh, hi, it's a pleasure to, but by the time I got to the word two, before I said, meet you, he's already gone. I mean, he, you know, he's somewhere yeah, else. Uh, I, 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 one thing that it was me personally, um, when he was fighting De La Hoya, they did a tour of the country and um, they came to Philadelphia and um, Floyd had just won the ring belt as the welterweight champion. So I had permission to take it to him during the, the press conference. And um, when my time came, I came up, I said a few words, not much at all, gave him the belt, you know, held his hand up. He didn't even say thank you. And a little bit later when he was talking to the audience, he held it up like it was a dead fish. And what he said, they gave me this. So I said, well, what a prick. When it was all over and there was like a long line of people that he went down, like, you know, a receiving line. When he got to me, oh, you guys are doing a great job with the Ring magazine. I want you to come out to training camp. I'm thinking this is the same guy. So I, I can't really explain him, but um, a lot of the times he does, I guess he feels bad or he wouldn't apologize. Right. But uh, those are two of the the most difficult boxers that I've ever dealt with. I know at the um, Hall of Fame, because I'd go with Angelo. Angelo and I were in Cinderella Man together. But I first met him when he brought Jose Napoli to fight Clyde Gray in Toronto. And I, wow. waited, I waited after the fight to meet him. And I got to meet him. And uh, he asked me if I boxed. And I said, yes. And he said, are you good? I said, I'm pretty good. He said, then you should quit because you have to be special. And the size of your head, the, the other guy doesn't have to leave the, his corner to actually land a punch on you. So you're, <laughs> you're at a disadvantage. 
And then he said to me, do you want to meet the big guy? And Muhammad came out because he was one of the promoters. And I was 13, 14, but I just cried the whole time, even at that age, because I couldn't believe it's, I mean, this is my hero. I, you're not well, you're never going to be a hero. People like you and me, boxers are our heroes when we're kids, and that doesn't really go away. Uh, I wrote a long piece about Dick Tiger, um, who was, I think the heading was, uh, you know, a real hero or whatever it was, you know, that he was a hero. Um, Absolutely. And, and yeah, I, I used to watch him on the uh, TV. And um, he was something really special. He stood by his people at the darkest hour. And the part how he had to sneak out through a jungle trail to get to Vegas to fight Roger Rouse. Um, and, uh, you know, he was, um, oh, and another part that I, I don't know if I had it in the story. When he went to the uh, Nigerian embassy to see if he could go home without getting arrested or something, um, he took Larry Merchant with him. Wow. Larry Merchant well, didn't say anything. He was just a witness. And Tiger trusted him and knew that if Larry Merchant was there, these guys couldn't say one thing and then do another. If he'd have taken a lawyer, probably wouldn't have worked. But Larry Merchant is, uh, you know, he's got to, he's got a vehicle to express himself in. And um, I'm sure. Uh, but Tiger was a real gentleman, you know, and, and uh, he did sent all his money home and he lived like in a dump. Um, and, uh, you know, they couldn't understand why this guy that, you know, was a top performer fighting at the garden all the time. And uh, I think I mentioned they doubled the normal fee for him because mm -hmm. he attracted so many fans. Um, carrying his equipment around in a paper bag sometimes, <laughs> you know, and uh, doing his laundry to keep busy between sparring and things. He was a different the kind property of property never leaves you. Pardon me? The poverty never leaves you when you grow up yeah, with that. Exactly. Subsistence fa uh, farmers, that's what they were. Yeah, and my Although his grandfather was a great warrior, and his mother thought that, you know, that he was the re reincarnation of, of his grandfather. But um, yeah, uh, some of the things that he saw, you know, the bombing landing on homes and entire villages wiped out. I mean, it was. A, horrendous mismatch from the beginning you know but um there was genocide in the northern part of uh, nigeria um and it was it was a terrible thing and he actually i forget what the award is but every year the queen they give certain people a little medal i forget what it is it's something of the british empire a member of the british order yeah, of the right british. so dick tiger had one of those and he mailed it back to the queen. And this is this is another little interesting thing. He got the idea to do it because John Lennon had just done it. Right. And um, you know, that of course it didn't affect the queen and all the arms sales <laughs> to the Nigerian government, but he just wanted to let them know, you know, I, I don't want this piece of shit. Because I know that sense. When he got stopped by Bob Foster, my father cried. And I said, It was it's tough to watch. <laughs> it was. 
Yeah, and my father, I said, but it's a legitimate knockout. He didn't cheat. And he said, yeah, but it's Dick Dagger. This is a man. This is someone who deserves better than this. Well, you know, it's um, it's chilling just to watch it for me. You know, watch the replay yeah. or some of the things. But, you know, that that just comes with the territory. And, and, he, and he had that great comeback fight, fight with DePaula. Mm-hmm. Fight of the year in the ring. <laughs> so, um, of course, of course, when he came here, he was 30. And that, it was ancient for a boxer in those days. I mean, he had a lot of fights in England. He had quite a few in Nigeria, but he had a lot of fights in England. And, and he lost uh, a lot of his early fights. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he had like, I think he had four fights with Joey Giardello. And um, he lost the title to him and then won the title back from Giardello. But prior to that, when they were contenders, uh, I think they were, they were two and two. But... Uh, Giardello, of course, was a Philadelphia fighter and right. a real character, a real character. He uh, he said, I don't have to train. I'm a natural. I just fight. And, and a lot of that was true. Um, he uh, I went there with Jim. Passyunk Avenue was a famous place in South Philly where there's a, 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 a statue, not a statue, a sculptor uh, of Joey Giardello now. Oh, really? Yeah, right around where the gym used to be. And so I went down the gym and there was a, something on the ground floor. I don't know what it was. Then there was a, the gym and then the third floor was where everybody gambled. So I went in there looking for him, <laughs> the, the gym part. Oh, no, he's, he's playing up. He's playing cards upstairs. <laughs> so um, a lot of great fighters because they have so much talent, they don't train as hard as they should. I guess it's just a real temptation. Like the guy that I managed, Jerome Artist, beat Sugar Ray Leonard in the National Golden Gloves, but wouldn't train, you know? So that's it's just a, it's a weird thing. Uh, like Gypsy Joe Harris, who was a phenomena, a real phenomena. There's a little bit of film of his last fight which was with with emil griffith that really didn't show anything um he was uh, inspiration uh people would come and fill the joint when he was still in the preliminaries just to see him and uh he he was um he looked like a little gnome (laughs) i don't mean that insultingly but he did and um I like a lot of fighters that are very good defensively, and he was very good defensively. He always made the other guy pay. And um, he would do all kinds of things. He would do he would do the Jersey Joe Walcott walk away. He would uh, go in a corner and put his hands over the two ropes and duck every punch the guy was throwing at him. Amazing, amazing fighter. Um, you know, he was 21 fights or something, and he was through. Um, you know, he beat Curtis Cox at the Garden, and then Curtis Cox became the welterweight champion. And of course, everybody wanted to see Gypsy Joe uh, fight him again and win the title. Um, he never went. He didn't even go to Texas. I guess it was Houston or Dallas. The fight was because he was he, he couldn't. He knew he couldn't make weight, so he didn't go. And uh, in a way. It's a good thing he didn't. The people who were promoting the fight were crooks, and they sold all the tickets twice. 
<laughs> and now the fight didn't come off, you know, because Gypsy Joe stayed in Philly. But um, they knew the the commission. They knew all along he only had one eye. I, I have to tell you, Nigel, uh, I, I did stand up for about 30, 35 years. And the similarities between stand up comedy and boxing in terms of criminality are frightening. <laughs> That you get called up to go do a show and they'd say, Oh, there's no money. So you get a free dinner. <laughs> and then you you get to the show and you speak to the owner, oh, we we paid the club twenty five hundred dollars for you. So <laughs> this would happen all the time. Or you'd go on the road somewhere and you're supposed to get twenty five hundred for the week and you, you end up coming home with seven hundred and then yeah, they took eighteen hundred. And I just you'd say to them, Where do you get that? Where do you get the cojones to dig that kind of commission? They're and, in boxing. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, 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 uh, I haven't been ripped off too much, but the one thing for a long time, different people would, you know, want to do a documentary or wanted to do a lengthy interview. Pick Once the bunch of guys came over from Japan just to pick my brain, and I realized that I was giving myself away for nothing. And uh, now I, I charge, your knowledge is your stock and trade. I mean, my, my wife always says to me, you have these thousands of pages of archives on boxers going back up hundred years. And when someone calls you from the paper to ask you about a fight from 1856, <laughs> you, shouldn't, you shouldn't just say, yeah, I'll give it to you. Don't give it to them. Yeah. You have to do yeah, work. You, you, you know, it's different if you're, they're interviewing you for a story or something, but um, when when they just want you to do, a lot of people want, you know, just the old line. When, when my office was in Manhattan, the old line was when I was naive. Um, well, you know, if you come on this show, you're going to get a lot of publicity and that'll raise oh, you true. up. It didn't give me a dime, you know, uh, so in my old age, I got tough. <laughs> I started well, charging them. In stand-up, it would always be, you got a lot of exposure. You're going to get yeah. exposure. And a friend of mine who's a great comic and still doing it said, I live in Canada. You know, <laughs> I can go outside in winter with my underwear on and die from exposure in this country. Let me tell you something for running. We run out of time here. I have seen, I used to own property in Nova Scotia. Beautiful the, uh, Eastern coast. Right. And, uh, we went to Halifax to see fights a few times. Uh, Clyde Gray was fighting, but uh, he wasn't there. Um, Dave Downey was the big star. Right. Uh, and of course, it was a very racially charged place at the time. Civil Still rights were just coming in. This is in the 70s. Uh, but uh, Dave Downey was very good, very good. But he was happy with just being the middleweight champion of Canada. And he was a very sweet man. And we even went up to um, a mining town uh, in Nova Scotia and saw a guy called, uh, I think it was Barry Sponagle. You ever heard of him? Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We so, so we, we, we took a, a, long, a long weekend and went up and saw him fight. And it was, on, it was funny. It was in a um, minor league uh, hockey rink. They filled the place. What else can you do in Stellarton? That's where Stellarton. Stellarton's um, the home of Art Hafey. Yeah, right. And um, uh, 
when we pulled into the motel we'd rented, there were two guys fighting in the parking lot. We thought, oh, this is going to be a good show. But the funny thing was that um, the crowd thought the fighters were great. They thought their fighters were really, really good. And I mean, Sponicle was just an average fighter. And he was way better than anybody else on the card. And um, I was involved in managing fighters a little bit at that time. And um, I, uh, I told the promoter that, you know, I can send some good fighters up here. He said, we don't want good fighters up here. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I have actually, I think it may be about three or four. Uh, you, should, you should go to Prince Edward Island if you get a chance and go to, to Charlottetown. Oh, yeah? Which is where it's the birthplace of Canada. You could walk Charlottetown in an hour or two. That's how small it is, Nigel. But the nicest people, the cheapest seafood on earth, and like in Nova Scotia, just very, very friendly. Um, the reason there's that racial tension, it goes all the way back to George Dixon when there was a place called Africville and the city right. burned and uh, got rid of it. And um, so from Nova Scotia, you have, as obviously you know, uh, George Dixon, Sam Langford, um, mysterious Billy Smith. They all got out of town. <laughs> right. And and uh, all through Boston. And Art Hafey, of course, who beat Ruben Olivares and nicest guy. And, he was uh, a good fighter, but uh, who was it that knocked him out? finished his career pretty much. Well, you know what happened? People don't know the story behind that. Danny Little Red Lopez. Yeah, that's who it was, yeah. And what happened was Art fought his whole career with Thompson's disease, which is a neurological disease, which would make his body freeze up. So he, <laughs> wouldn't, be, he wouldn't be able to move. And he came back because he was in San Diego fighting for Don Chargan. So he, he came back and he would walk. He couldn't move. He'd be in the street and somebody would say, just get on the sidewalk. But he couldn't physically move. And he, he went had that throughout his fighting career? throughout his career. So wow. so he went to see a, a neurosurgeon and he said, you shouldn't be in the ring with this. This could happen to you anytime and there's nothing we can do. And he he still fought and was very, I was very upset with Richard Steele because he fought a rematch of Oliveras and one judge had it 8-7, I think, Oliveras, the other had it 8-7. Uh, for Art, and then Richard Steele had it fourteen to one for for Oliveras. So I said to uh, him, "You mentioned Richard Steele, okay? This is, yeah. this is something. Um, a lot of people asked me, how do you beat Floyd Mayweather?" And I said, "Well, the first thing you've got to do is find a referee who won't let him clinch twenty times around. It was jab, right hand, clinch." And who was his referee? Still. Yeah. So can I prove that he was doing it? Uh, I can't. Um, but it's it's too much to be a coincidence. Let's put it that way. I, I agree. I, I said to him at the hall one year, I, he said, well, that was a bad night. I said, 14 to 1 is not a bad night. I said, you either did it deliberately or you were paid off. But there's no other option. Now, you know, he didn't one. freeze up the second fight, just the first right. fight, right? Yeah. yeah. 
And, I used to like uh, watching Art's fights. They were exciting. Me too. I, I have a DVD of his that I can send you, and uh, his nephew did. And he he had it happen during uh, the Arguello fight, and he had it happen during Lopez. And he was very upset because he thought he could beat Lopez. But after that, I mean, he, he made very little money. And, and, and I'm sure you've seen this. He's in Halifax. And so he, he had a heart attack last year, but oh, he's, he? yeah, he's doing all right. But, you know, in his areas, you know, the, he made nothing as a featherweight. So he had to fight. He was, doctor said, you cannot fight Lopez. And he said, I'm getting $25,000. I can't turn it down. And Arguello was 15 grand. So he took That was pretty years. good in those days, really. Oh, yeah. yeah. And he, he bought a small apartment complex, three-story maybe 15 units and he's lived off that since the middle 70s well, and he's he was smart. All he was smart yeah and you know bernard hopkins uh has a lot of rental property i mean it'd be an exaggeration to say he's got the first time he ever owned um right he was very disciplined i i know bernard hopkins very well and um i think he was the the greatest middleweight since uh, Hagler. Oh, I agree. An Angelo Dundee said he was the best trained fighter he ever saw in his entire life. Now, he was a lot, he was very similar to Bud Crawford. Mm -hmm. they, they learned everything. You know, that's why Roy Jones kept getting knocked out when he slowed down a bit. He never learned that stuff. He just right. had this wonderful reflexes and speed, but he didn't learn the basics of boxing and um, Bernard and Bud are the two that I, I can uh, associate together to guys that actually they could do everything. And Bernard would openly say the last, oh, the last quarter of his, his career, he had the same uh, plan every fight. And that was take what the other guy does best away. <laughs> he, you know, that's that's the only way he could win. Yeah, that's brains. I mean, that's his most potent weapon. He, when he was in Toronto, promoting his fight to Jean Pascal, and uh, I think one of the fights was a draw. I think the first fight. Yeah, the first one. Yeah. And when I asked, like in the media room in Montreal. I said to Bernard, how can you stand there and be calm when you won the fight and they ripped you off? And of course, being a Canadian with all these French Canadians and other Canadians, I, I thought they were going to tear me apart. But that's what I thought. And I, I asked him, I said, you fought Jermaine Taylor twice. You beat him twice and you got ripped off. How do you how do you come back from that mentally? And he said, you can't pin your whole life on one thing like that and wreck the rest of your life. You have to accept it for what it is, put it in its place and keep going. I mean, he's, he's a, I like him, you know, we've been semi friends for a long time, but he's not always nice. <laughs> um, he didn't get married until he won the Millaway title. The discipline he had after getting out of prison was unreal. I don't know if you know, he got a job. The only job he got was washing dishes in a hotel in Philadelphia. 
Mm -hmm. He'd been there for, I think, a year or a little bit more. And um, they found out that he didn't put, put on his application form that he had a felony. And they fired him, even though he was a good employee. And he didn't know what to do. And then sort of Lady Luck stepped in. Uh, Bowie Fisher, who was a, a trainer, actually, he made his living. He had a, uh, a shop that repaired transmissions. And he said to Bernard, you come work with me. He said, I don't know anything about transmissions. He says, I'll teach you. And um, Bowie was, I liked Bowie. He was, he was a really nice, friendly guy. And we always used to talk. Um, but of course, Bernard screwed him. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, he was as ruthless in some ways outside the ring as he was inside. But I have tremendous respect for a man he had like, his parole was like double figures. I don't know if it was 10, 12 or, or, or what it was. It wasn't single figures. He had to, he couldn't, you know, sneeze uh, for all those years, well over a decade. And, um, you know, he just, just did never did nothing after that except fight. Um, and um, there's a lot of guys that are in prison that come out and, you know, it's is they're right back to their old ways after a while uh tony ayala yeah uh, he he was a tragic t he was he was he was abused as a child and as you know okay. that uh victims become perpetrators very often very often everyone thought he was going to be the guy to give Hagler his biggest fight even though he was in so. your middle yeah i mean you know Hagler was a good defensive fighter when he mm -hmm. wanted to be. I mean, it's, I think his fight with Mugabe was in a way harder than the fight with Hearns because it went on a long time. Mm -hmm. And I think those two fights finished him. He was, yeah. not, but he only had one fight with Ray Leonard afterwards. <clears throat> Excuse me. But there were certain things you, you can see, and I'm sure you've seen it, on uh, great fighters who are past their peak. They push their punches instead of snapping them. And that's the first thing I saw when, you know, he would get he would get Leonard on the ropes and go to the body. But it wasn't like he used to go to the body, you know. He was pushing his punches. And he, he also gave away the first three rounds. <laughs> which yeah, which you can do. And, and, and that, was, that was interesting. Um, he wanted a 15 rounder right now now maybe he he would have won a 15 round who knows uh leonard didn't and uh they gave they gave bernard another million dollars and he took the money instead of the three rounds well you know it's interesting angelo said he was shocked because he went in to negotiate. he said petronelli's were friends of mine but they weren't good negotiators and he said we we wanted to cut three rounds nine minutes off the fight we wanted a larger ring, and um, and and he said they went sure because they're out of. He said it doesn't make a difference. Marvin's going to knock him out in the first one or two rounds anyways. What, what else? <laughs> and he said Angelo just couldn't. He had to look at at you know Ray and think, are they being? Is this like a big joke? You're going to do that? And go yeah, your guy's got nothing. We're going to take him out early. And he thought I, that's I, you know. Yeah, I I don't you know say this is perfectly true, but I think that Ray Leonard is probably the greatest fighter since Ali. Yeah, I agree with that. 
Yeah, because he, he fought everybody. He didn't duck anybody. And boy, you know, he was a pretty boy. You know, he did commercials. He I described wow. it. He had a Madison Avenue face. But boy, was he vicious. I mean, yeah. that the last knockout was the one with Lalonde. And yeah. Donnie yeah. knocked him down early. But boy, the finish of that was unmerciful. And yeah, people think because he was such a nice guy and friendly and all that and good looking, but when that bell ring, he was a different guy. He was really a vicious fighter and a very accomplished boxer. So there's to, there's so many people you could put that tag on. But um, I, I, I have to tell you something about Ray Leonard. Um, very close with Ian Clyde, a flyweight, and Ian was in Angelo's stable. And Ian's like Jiminy Cricket. It's always in a great mood, always calls you, never forgets your birthday. He's never forgotten my daughter's birthday. And he's never That's met great. Her. And he's just the nicest guy. He's a bit of pugil pugilistic dementia, but he's a great guy. Sometimes forgets to pay the rent. Sometimes, you know, they'll ask him to move from where he is because he's forgotten to pay. And because he was in the Canadian Olympic team, he gets a pension, but he forgets to keep reapplying. Anyways, we when I saw Ray at the Hall of Fame, I told him about this because he asked, how's Ian? And I gave, he said, do you have any contact? And I gave it to him. And Ian, he called me in an hour later and he went to see him a couple of days later and he helped him out financially and helped him put a lot of stuff in order. He didn't have to do that. No. But he did. He said, I love Ian. He's my brother. And I said to him, I heard Ian knocked you down in training camp when you guys were sparring once, but he's a flyweight. He said, you let him. And he said, well, <laughs> you will never know the true answer. <laughs> I don't know. You know, they, Philadelphia was <coughs> very famous for the gym wars. It was um, Which were better, Angelo said, than most real fights. Yeah, but the thing is, um, they still have them occasionally, but but not not when I, I first started going to the gym in the gyms in, in the late 60s. And for a long time, when I was living in Philadelphia, it was, makes it a lot easier, you know. Um, I was at the gym three, four, five times a week. And so you, you get to know these guys. And um, I would say, you know, 90% of fighters are nice guys, you know, they, they really are, uh, unless you're fighting them. <laughs> uh, when uh, it, it's in my tribute to Benny Briscoe, um, at the funeral, when his brother spoke, um, I think his brother's a school teacher or a principal, and um, he said, "If if Briscoe had a million dollars, he wouldn't have a dime. He'd give it all away because he knew what it was to be hungry." And that's true. And um, that's why he was one of the early guys who shaved his head because he had a rather large family and they would shave it off so they didn't have to get another haircut and pay some more money later. Yeah, and, I didn't know that. Yeah, so he, um, he'll always be my favorite fighter. Um, what is it about Philadelphia? What I mean, Angelo said there's tough, super tough, and then Philly tough. And you could go back to Lou Tendler or even to Owen Ziegler in the 1880s. Why does Philadelphia produce so many world champions in every division that are phenomenally tough? Well, you know, a lot of a lot of those the fighters came with the great migration from down south. Like Joe Fraser wasn't from Philly, <laughs> you know. South Carolina, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, so uh, Benny Briscoe wasn't from Philly. Bob Montgomery wasn't from Philly. They all came from down south. And um, Bob Montgomery was uh, very lucid in his old age until maybe the last year. And he could tell you every penny he earned. He knew the purse for every fight he ever had. He knew the date. He knew the guy. And um, he he was uh, he was still very active. Um, he made a lot of money fighting uh, for those days, and he had a lot of businesses, uh, laundries, uh, barber shops, stuff like that. And he told me he said um, he was a gambler. He said that I became the book, <laughs> and you know the book you lose all your damn money unless you're really rich. So um, he, right up until he got, you know, really near the end, he would go to this bar in Philadelphia, down near where the stock exchange are, and all of those guys go in there for lunch, and uh, he would take bets. He was he was still he was still taking bets. He wasn't the book, but he he was still taking bets. That's what he did every day. He'd go to that bar. And, Everybody loved him. They, a lot of people didn't know who he was. They, you know, there's, there's this character, friendly character. Well, and he, he, used, he used to, um, I tell you, I don't know if you know this. At one time in Philadelphia, the black riders could not sit ringside with the white fighters. That I knew, yes. And it was Bob Montgomery and his manager, Joe Granby, that stopped that. They said, we're not fighting. And... That's so, you know, besides a great fighter, he uh, he did do something like that. I uh, like that in baseball. He he used to come to the Blue Horizon and um, there was a bar very close and he didn't always make it to the Blue Horizon. You know, he, he liked to drink. And um, sometimes after the fight, I'd be going down Broad Street in Philadelphia and I'd see him on his own. And, you know, he wasn't walking that well. So I would pick him up and take him home. Um, he never took, he never showed me where he lived. He said, it was, he was in, it was in like a sort of out center city. Um, he would just say, okay, this is great. I'll get out here. But uh, he, he was a sweetheart. And, and inside the ring, that uh, nickname, the Bobcat was, oh, he, he was he'd, do anything. he'd do anything. I mean, his fights with Ike Williams are some of the greatest fights of all time. I mean, yeah, everybody remembers the one where he lost, but they forget the one that he won. And um, it was a know, matter and, of like, he was in his prime, Ike wasn't, and then he was washed up and White, Ike was in his prime. So, you know, who knows what would have happened if they both meet in their prime. And I know that. Mm -hmm. The fight, uh, well, the, the fights with Bojack were really famous. Wow! Uh, they had the one during the war that uh, set the biggest gate of all time. It's probably gone now, but it was for a long time because they were buying war bonds, the people to get in, and um, him and Bojack they fought for nothing. They got two grand each to uh, training expenses. But uh, that they made a huge amount of money, millions and millions. Of course, it was for a good cause. And when he was down on his luck, he went, I don't know what 
part of the government he went to, but he went to somebody uh, in the government and um, told them who he was and how much money he'd given to charity. Could they help him? No, they didn't do nothing for him. They didn't. They probably didn't even believe him. But uh, so you know he. He took bets and he had a good time. Uh, he was very jolly, very jolly guy. And you know, his memory, I can't remember any, half the stuff I do, but he can remember the first to the last, every penny he earned and who he fought. Wow. Yeah. There were so many fighters like that. I, I, Angelo would, I asked him about Tommy Bell, who Ray Robinson beat for the welterweight title. Right. And he said, Lou, there's so many great fighters like that. It, it, it tears me apart that people today don't know about them, how how wonderful and how great these guys were. Yeah, there is a small cult within the smaller, larger cult of boxing that are interested in boxing history. That's why we have so many of these uh, self-published bios. Uh, right. Boxers. Um, so, yeah, it is. Uh, it sort of fools you if you're involved in boxing as much as you and I are. You, you, sometimes you just feel like everybody's like us, but of course they're not. And um, it, that's a shame. But like I say, the money's rolling in. Now, this is this is something that uh, I'm not very fond of. Um, there is an active club scene in Philadelphia. Um, a couple of casinos. There's a small arena called the 2300 Arena. Um, uh, there's four or five places that put on club shows. You know, the prices are unreal. They start at 50 bucks, then 75. If you want to be ringside, 150 bucks for a club fight. Wow. That's, you know, <laughs> you could sit ringside in Madison Square Garden for that not too long ago. And um, I don't know why they do that. Um, maybe, see, if you don't have TV um, for a club fight, you're only going to have so many people. So I guess they, it's, uh, you know. Right. I, I know here in Toronto, there's a promoter that what they do, United Promotions, is they get fighters to sell tickets because they don't get TV coverage. Yeah, and well, so a lot of all, all beginners, and you know, when they fight on small clubs, they're poisoned if they can't sell tickets. Right. And and they hooked up with I the Tiger Promotions to help each other in in um, Montreal. But, you know, there are there are um, some stories, for instance, you know, the original George Godfrey from PEI, Old Chocolate, uh, his family's very wealthy because when he died, he owned a lot of land oh. and and he told them never to sell it. He said you could have people build on it never give the land away. And they still have that land in Boston and they're still quite wealthy. And he died in what, 1904. Oh, so did you interview these people for your Godfrey book? Um, I've spoken to his relatives and I've spoken to the relatives of George Budge Byers as well, because the families are related. Right. And their first cousins, George Byers and George Godfrey. And George, I've tracked George Byers family to to Virginia, colony of Virginia in the late 1600s. And then the slave owner that left because he had an affair with uh, um, one of his 
female slaves went to South Carolina and then the American Revolution broke out and was sent to Florida, kicked out of Florida by the Spanish and, and then went to Jamaica, didn't like the didn't like the weather and then took him and Byers great great grandfather and great great grandmother from Jamaica to to New Brunswick to Halifax and finally to Charlottetown PEI. So I, I Yeah, that's I didn't know that Godfrey had uh, left a lot of well land but it he knew that it was going to be money, you know, he told him not to sell it now. Yeah. yeah, and 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 it's interesting when I see in the Hall of Fame it kills me that they have Steve Williams George Godfrey in there. They don't have the original George Godfrey. He was on the ballot, but I don't think many people knew who he was and didn't vote well, for him. Well, you know, there's, I've been voting ever since they started it. Um, but there's a problem. Uh, the uh, Boxing Writers Association of America, uh, I don't belong to it, but um, anybody who is a member can vote on the Hall of Fame. They just carte blanche. Now there are historians and people that know, but a lot of those people don't know boxing before Muhammad Ali. And some of them, they don't know boxing before Mike Tyson. Right. So that's why um, a lot of people, they, they, they see a famous name and they check the block. I've been doing this ever since they opened up and every year I've got the old record book out. I got box rec on. I really spend a lot of time making my choices, but uh, I think a lot of them, they just, okay, I've heard of that guy, you know, this, you know, that's, uh, but um, the Hall of Fame, um, now that it's uh, connected to the Turning Stone Casino, um, were you there the, the year they swore in three classes because of the pandemic? No, I missed that year. Yeah, that, they, they, yeah, they, they didn't have it for three years, so they bought everybody who'd been voted in for, for three years. And um, a lot more is at, at the casino now than out on the grounds. I was going, I had tickets, but I had to have a pacemaker put in, so I wasn't allowed out after, unfortunately. How are you feeling now? Well, now I feel a lot better, thank you. Yeah, I mean, now it makes the world, I'm totally dependent on it. But it makes a world of difference. But yeah. I, I, I used to go with Angelo, so I was I, I knew how lucky I was because here I am, a boxing writer, but a nobody from Canada, and nobody in Canada, and to befriend a person who I fell in love with was like a father to me, and you know take me here and introduce me to all these people, and you know my friends would say, so you know George Foreman and you know this person? No, my, Angelo knows him. And he was kind enough to introduce me, and I got to speak to him for a couple seconds. So, yeah, yeah. George Foreman, um, in his second career, was a very good interview. In his first career, I, well, I didn't interview him then, but um, when when he, uh, I think it was when he went into the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. um, he went in the Hall of Fame at the end of his second career because they didn't even have it prior to that when he fought the first time. Um, he said, because uh, he was working for HBO, you know, had some good gigs. I said, well, why did you quit? He said, I couldn't afford to keep doing it. His other businesses outside of boxing yeah. um, took all of his time, you know.
NASCAR, dog breeding, horse breeding. Yep. So George Foreman, he, to me, he's sort of like a guy, I think, um, hundred years from now, he'll be like John Henry or Paul Bunyan, like a, a mystical figure. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, uh, I sort of think that way about him because the way he's accomplished, uh, you know, what he did is amazing because before he beat Moore for the title, he lost convincingly to um, Evander Holyfield. He, he put up mm -hmm. a good fight, but, you know, he didn't get close to winning. And there was another guy from New York who beat him. Tommy beat Morrison him. beat him. No, oh, not Briggs. Tommy Morrison. Briggs. It was, Shannon Briggs. It, Shannon his Briggs. face was terrible, yeah. Oh, and, oh, and Alex Stewart. Meetings. Alex Stewart. Yeah, that's it, Alex Stewart. I mean, he looked like he lost, and he might have lost, but they gave it to him. But, I mean, those those were two fights that he had on his comeback that, you know, he really took a lot of hard punches. And uh, and then to come back. I mean, and the thing with the Michael Moore fight, it's a typical example of being relaxed. I mean... <laughs> It was just like, you know, <laughs> he's down. There was a there was a right hand before the one that put him down. And if you right. notice, talking about Crawford again, the first, his knockdowns were, were they weren't, they were just a little, they didn't wind up. He just threw that right hand out the first time. He just did it, mm -hmm. you know? Um, he wasn't like, you know, winding up. He just, boop, boop, a little short, perfect punch, and down you go. Um, and, and that's because they can relax. Uh, yeah, Angelo said to him after the round before he knocked more out, you're behind in rounds. And George told me he got angry. Angelo, look at me. Look, I'm slower than an elephant. I can't win on rounds against anyone, even Mother <laughs> Teresa. I have to knock him out. I know what I'm doing. Leave me alone. And he was yeah, trying to. Yeah, he knew what he was doing. He knew what he was doing. And Michael Moore was not the most confident guy in the world either. But um, no, and, and he he uh, he just took a punch and whoo, he's gone. Teddy Atlas kept telling him through the whole fight. He's saying, Michael, he's trying to sucker you into a straight right. He keeps moving you over. Don't move. And Moore would say, I'm going to knock him out. And he said, No, you're not going to knock him out. Hit him and run. And right. didn't listen. And more and Teddy Atlas had that great thing. I don't know if it might have been against Holyfield where. Moore comes back from the rounds over and Teddy's sitting on the chair. Oh, yeah. Right. And he says to him, you only get this chance once in your life. I don't want to hear you tomorrow. Tell me, get him again. Tomorrow is to now, right now. This is it. If you want it, do it. If you don't, we'll stop it. Yeah. I mean, I mean that speech. was, you know, that, that, that was made him the champion and made a lot of money, but the rematch was like, he didn't fight at all. He gets how many times did he no. get knocked down in the rematch? More, yeah. yeah. Uh, so what happened between? I don't know. Um, that was a time that um, Holyfield claimed he had a hole in his heart or something, and right, and it was some healed. Preacher solved him or solved it for yeah. him. But um, Holyfield, he fought everybody, man. <laughs> he fought yeah. Everybody. I, I know as a, as a Canadian, I was watching the fight, the first one of Lennox, and Lennox definitely beat him. And oh. the way they, I have that in my book, but the way they ripped him off. And then I was reading, you know, with Eugenia Williams, how a newspaper in England said that she'd been paid off, that, that Don King, 
had paid her mortgage and she was behind it. She lost her house and then paid her bills. So she sued and she won. And when I spoke to a friend in England, he said, well, he said, that's not really a comment on, on the newspaper's comments. It's a comment on how poor the British judicial system is. My friend said, you have to remember this. Um, in the 1950s, an English newspaper called Liberace a Flaming Homosexual, he sued and he won. Yeah. So you have well, to they had, this, they had the system in England. If you sue somebody, uh, whoever wins got to pay the other person's legal bills. Right. So you don't have as many uh, fishing expeditions like, you know, people suing people. They know they're... Uh, well, we had it at the ring once. Um, it, it made no sense whatsoever. It, it was even before I worked there. Um, there was a mention of somebody who had a knife. And um, it wasn't even on the same page as the people who were suing us, right? So they were in California. We were in New York, so it would have cost us more to hire a lawyer in California and go to court than it would be to give this guy a couple of grand. So they were they're fishing expeditions, knowing that yeah. you know it costs a lot of money, and and that is a good thing about the British uh, judicial system that the, mm-hmm. the loser pays the other guy's bills. Right. But the yeah. fact that, you know, Liberace was gay was true. But right. I, I, I guess they, he couldn't prove it. No, and... and uh, of course, it was, might be before they even changed the law. Well, he had evidence. The writer had evidence that it wouldn't allow him to present it. Yeah. Well, maybe the judge was in the bag. I don't know. But, well, you know, uh, that's funny. I, I, I have... Uh, four cousins that are lawyers. So I've been lucky in that respect. Not that I've ever needed them a lot. But one of my cousins is retired now, but he was a a, um, copyright lawyer. And he said to Uh me, it doesn't doesn't come down to who's right or wrong. It comes down to how you manipulate the facts in your best interest. Yeah. And so, and various things I'd written an article years ago for a local Toronto magazine about the do's and don'ts of dating and uh, and the person acknowledged it and said, thank you, but we're going to give the byline to another writer. We're trying to help a female writer. And I spoke to my cousin and he said, well, you're not going to sue because the money they were going to pay you anyways, it's not going to be worth it. And he said, I'll just, and it ends up, he knows the lawyer for the company, for the magazine. He tells them they can't do it and calls me a day later and said, well, it doesn't matter anyways. The magazine just filed for bankruptcy. They're broke. Yeah. So yeah, you can't get money out of, out of anybody that's bankrupt. No, uh, so know? and it's, no. it's a shame. I mean, Did like you? when you know uh, Don King stole a lot of money from Mike Tyson, and, and Tyson mm-hmm. sued him, and um, I think he got over ten million dollars from Don King, but the mm-hmm. uh, IRS took it all away from him. He was that far behind in his taxes. So it's um, unbelievable when, when I could not believe. Nigel, this stunned me. When Ali fought Frazier the first time, they're each getting $2.5 million, And my father shows me a newspaper and it says, but they, they left with seven hundred and fifty grand each. 
And I said, how can it be? And he said, training camp expenses and IRS, they're the real mafia. Yeah, the, no, the IRS, no, no, no. you know, uh, that's big. Um, you know, training camp can be expensive, but not that expensive. Um, of course, you know, when they quote a purse, you know, going to make such amount of money, that doesn't mean the fighter gets that. I right. mean, taxes aside, uh, the promoter is going to get a piece. The manager is going to get a piece. The trainer is going to get a piece. Uh, sparring partners are going to get a piece. So, um, you know, and and the income tax bracket that the, the really big time fighters are is are ridiculous how much money they take. Um, so, uh, you know, a purse is for publicity, I think, sometimes. And, uh it's the opposite well i i don't know if you uh if you read russell peltz's book yes uh, uh the story of how we got the title of 30 dollars in the cut eye yeah <laughs> I, I think the purse was probably 50 bucks <laughs> yeah yeah oh, yeah so, i read i read his book william Deadlock's book and your book back to back to back well russell's book um it's unique. It reminded me of a diary. Um, and, uh, it was written like a reporter would write, not like a columnist or, you know, because that's, that's what, you know, he was, he was, uh, he was got a journalism degree from Temple right. University and worked on newspapers, but, um, it was a good idea. And, um, I mean, that's how it seemed to me that it was a diary of all of his fights. There wasn't yeah, really a lot of writing, but it was a, a very interesting. Um, I knew a lot of it, of course, but uh, I'll tell you though, to like do some research on on some of the, you know it'd be a, what I'm guessing. I'm saying it would be a great resource to people who are trying to uh, you know get some facts and figures and uh, to help. Well, there this is out. There was something in his book and, and, and yours that had me shaking in fear. Um, in his book, it, it's when the guy broke in and put a gun to his head. Ah, yes. And in your book, when you had to walk into the house where that mobster is, <laughs> you get him to sign it over. I mean, I would have had a, to be honest with you, I would probably had a stroke or a heart attack. Well, you I, wouldn't know something that, I, I think it was Don Stradley wrote in the review of my book and I'd never thought of this um, he said Nigel seems comfortable in every situation he describes in the book and he named some of them you know and I thought well you know I, I, I don't really think that way my way of thinking is kind of strange I guess whatever I'm doing I, okay this is what we're doing now you know, it doesn't, um, I get more upset because I can't work my computer <laughs> properly right. than anything else. But yeah, I, I, I guess you could say it was comfortable, but I was, I don't think of it as comfortable. I just think of, okay, we're doing this now. Um, you know, uh, I was more afraid when Alfonso threatened me in the gym. Because uh, when, when we went to do the money thing, um, he was just standing there, you know, 
But uh, right. And when he took our money for the fight uh, down in Maryland, um, I wasn't going to argue, you know. <laughs> but we finally got it, of course. But yeah, Arnold Giovanetti was an interesting guy. I mean, he obviously got bumped off, and you know, hmm. you don't you don't find your car at the airport and nobody ever hears or sees from you again. He wasn't a made man or anything like that. Um, he had one of those jobs where you just clock in and clock out. There's a name for that, you know, you don't get paid. And I noticed that he could always get publicity for his fighters on TV. Right. And they weren't always great fighters. Uh, I remember Ro Roger Russell was a fighter of his who was, you know, pretty worn out by then. Uh, he would get him on TV. Um, so I don't know exactly what he was doing. But whatever it was, it got him killed. I, this, this is bad. I'm just joking, people who watch this. Well, uh, I, I know Russell that. And I always joke that it was Alfonso Heyman that killed him. But uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not accusing him. That was just a joke. But uh, who knows? Right. I know that um, when I've gone to fights, there's a man here in Toronto named Marvin Elkin. And Marvin drove for for uh, Jimmy Hoffa for years and Vito Genovese and nice little tiny old Jewish guy. And, but my father knew him from school in the thirties. And so I, he's almost like a stepfather to me. So when I would see him at the fights and hi, how are you? And I would meet his friends. He would just say, stay away from them. And then he'd say to them, stay away from the kid. And I said, why should I stay away from them? Just stay away from them. They're not good people. But you're with yeah. them. Yeah. That's my job to be with them. There's also another thing, too. Um, some people that are involved in organized crime, they're better behaved in their boxing aspect of their lives than the rest of it. Right. Um, I think, you know, they respect the fighters. And, you know, it's nice to brag to their buddies that they got a piece of this guy and that guy and, and all. Um, now, I, I think the uh, obviously when they uh, robbed Russell at gunpoint was very scary, but when yeah. they firebombed his office, scary. Um, That's the message. Yes. Yeah, so uh, he was he was at a fight I think up in Connecticut, um, but his assistant Maureen and her boyfriend were there, and uh, they could have they could have burned to death, but uh, they they. It was hard to raise them, you know, people pounding on the door and yelling and screaming. And they finally did. And um, a lot of memorabilia, expensive memorabilia was burned. Tell me about that. Yeah. Yeah. So it was. Um, I mean, nothing like that's ever happened to me uh, <laughs> for any reasons. But yeah, I, I. You know, I always I always have a suspect in these things. Uh, I'm not saying it, of course, but um, who knows? Uh, nobody was ever caught. And I'm sure the guys that threw the actual Molotov cocktails were not the people. They were just hired. Uh, and, right. you know, they just caught the guys, a month or so, a guy that stole the belts from the Hall of Fame. Really? Yeah. Um, they were part of a, a gang that was robbing historical things and stuff. That was their specialty. And... They were stupid. They thought the belts were made out of gold. They're not. Uh, so they tried to melt it down. and, and They had nothing. 
But I don't know if the whole gang got caught, but the two guys that did that have been caught and been arrested. I, I don't know if they've had a trial or yet. But that was terrible for the families. Uh, the yes, Del and I got and, and the Basilio family because I you would, know that was huge having the belt. Well, I, and those were gorgeous belts. Those belts and the and and the Lonsdale belts are the prettiest belts I've ever seen. Well, you, you know? know when the ring belt was first made and that you know very recognizable design uh, when Nat Fleischer was running, they were actually made by a jeweler. As time went on, there was no money for jewelers. Um, and I think the Lonsdale belts are still made by a jeweler. And, uh, well, you know, Lord Lonsdale was a real prick. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> he had a prick and a bully, but he loved boxing. And, I, uh, I have to tell you, about two years ago, I was surfing on the net, and I saw Basilio's belts up for sale in England. So... I called my cousin. He said, well, don't comment on the page. They'll take it down. He said, call the person you know at the Hall of Fame and, and send them the link. And I did. I don't think it did anything. But well, you I just know, there's, there are replicas. There's, there's, there's some people that make replica belts and sell them. Right. Now, that's okay if you tell the person there's, a, you know, it's a replica. But, you know, the guy thinks he's got Joe Lewis's belt or something, and he doesn't, you know. It's like having a replica orgasm. It's not really quite as good as, as, as the um, the real thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, there was actually uh, a person who was selling replica ring belts at the Hall of Fame during the weekend. Wow. Yeah. I told the publisher. The publisher told the owner, and they did nothing. So what are you going to do? You know, it's. Uh, that's all you can do. Uh, right. They, they didn't even try to get it stopped. So, but That's anyway, sad. people, you know, do that. We're Listen, gonna have to I want the game someday. Yes, thank you. You're you're my hero, and I waited so long to speak to you and to be able to say thank you in person. I hope I wasn't and, a disappointment. <laughs> no, you were fantastic. It's funny how people as brilliant as you always say that, but you were fantastic. I wish. My wish is that you and Russell and Bill Detloff would do a podcast on SiriusXM because you guys would get millions of listeners from all over the world. And Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's when um, we have an all-sports radio station here in Philadelphia. And uh, when it first started out, um, Russell actually had a show. And it was very good. And, um, but... They won't even mention boxing on there now, you know. It, when you you know you did to get on with the person, um, you've got to go through a producer, and if they I, want to talk about boxing, they won't send it through. Except on that same. That shouldn't. Have, but that shouldn't I, apply to you. You're a world-renowned, award-winning fighter, or fighter no, writer, no, who everyone nobody, knows. Nobody who is on the air now. And that station knows much about boxing, very, very little. And they don't want to learn either. But actually, I think it was last Sunday, I did get on there. There's a guy called Sonny Hill. He's 88 years old. And he was very big in basketball in this city. He ran a league at one time. And I don't know what all of his accomplishments are. 
but on um, Sundays, he's on from, I think, 7 till 10. And he will talk about boxing. And um, so, fortunately, I got on there. I'm hoping that uh, it um, opened up a new market, old guys. Because <laughs> you know I mean? <laughs> uh, that's all, you know, I agree with him about some of the stuff he says. Um, but that's because, you know, uh, I'm sort of his age. Um, you're also Will in Chamberlain. that Will Chamberlain, right? He, that's always right. a controversy with him. They a lot of people think that Will Chamberlain couldn't play today and couldn't do the things he could today. I saw Will Chamberlain play. Wow. <laughs> he would have been absolutely fantastic today. <clears throat> he would well, you know, they changed the rules for him. Mm -hmm. Um he would go up to dunk the ball, he'd have two guys hanging on it, and the referee wouldn't call a foul. Um, it was a rough game back then. Basketball was a lot rough. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jerry West. Jerry yeah. West said that, too. He said LeBron James, Michael Jordan. When somebody went down on the floor in those days, it was for real. They weren't just flopping to get a foul. And, well, Jerry West said the guys today couldn't stop Will Chamberlain. He said, he yeah, said I that. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a different era. I don't like comparing boxers from different eras because it's not right. really fair. But I'll always stick up for Wilt Chamberlain. <laughs> he was amazing. Uh, he they beat the um, the Celtics uh, for the championship one day. Um, I forget what year it was, but I was I think I was still in school. But uh, I went to one of the games. That I knew a family wow. that would take me to stuff. And uh, yeah, Wilt Wilt was really something. And. Have you nobody's seen the documentary? The nobody's made the hundred points, have they? Since then, I think so. No, not even play. close. Well, you know, Wilt Chamberlain. I think it was Customato was trying to make a, a match between Wilt Chamberlain and, and Ali. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's that picture of him, like you know, Wilt Chamberlain's way up here and Ali's down here. It's really funny. Of course, it never happened. Well, do you know what Ali said to him when they were about to sign, apparently? Ali yelled out, Timber! <laughs> yeah. And looked at him and said, why do you think just because you're much taller than me that I won't destroy you? Do you know the athletes that are closest to boxers? And they're not really thought of as athletes, but they are, are dancers. Really? Yeah. Footwork's everything in boxing. Right. Um, you know, Footwork Balance, is a lost art. Those that can yeah. do it, you you know, you saw Bud Crawford do it. He just he yeah. didn't, wasn't running around. He was just stepping, creating angles. Boxing is all about angles and footwork because, you know, Teddy Atlas used to say on TV, it doesn't matter how big of a bomb you've got, you've got to have a way to land it. Yeah. And um, that's very, very true. And... Uh, Boxing is um, more complicated, but simpler than people think. It's a fight. That's all and it is. But the, the techniques are very complicated if you're very good at it. And I always think of Charlie Goldman, Rare Cell, Angelo Dundee, Eddie Futch, Jack Blackburn, uh, Doc Bagley, who, who you mentioned is probably the first modern trainer and all these guys, and when I hear people, it must drive you nuts when people, because I was talking to to uh, Russell about this, when people comment on fights, and this is what really happened, 
and you see it and you think, I was at that fight. But you said it had nothing to do with what actually happened. <laughs> so it's always that revisionist history. And I always, when I see you comment online, I think, Nigel covered the fight. How can you disagree with him? Well, you know, it was funny in that story that we all like uh, 10% off the top. Uh, mm -hmm. The first death threat was at Jimmy Arthur's gym. And Jimmy Arthur, um, his big fighter he had was Tyrone Everett, uh, who got Great fight. shot. Um, it, it's it's uh, kind of strange, but um, Russell calls him the greatest trainer you've never heard of. Right. Jimmy Arthur. And he was a great trainer. And he did things that, you know, he, someone makes some of his money, he would take opponents up to Scranton or something like that. And, um, and you know, he, he had a lot of fighters that were the B side, but he always tried to figure out a way they could win or look good. It didn't always work, but he really tried to help them to do something. And he also was pretty smart. He said that when I overtook a guy, I always took a couple of his corner boys up with us. So he couldn't go back to Philly and say he was robbed. <laughs> you know? right. So I, I knew him. I, I really liked Jimmy Arthur. He was very, very smart. Um, here's a little story about the kind of man I think he was. Um, it was at the Blue Horizon. And he had a fighter that, that was making his pro debut. And I just gone down to the dressing room to say hi to him. Everybody called him Art. And um, this kid was upset. And he was upset because he had a hole in his sock. And he thought everybody was going to see it and he'd be embarrassed. So Jimmy Arthur just got down on his knees and he folded the sock over so he couldn't see it. <laughs> and that really impressed me. Most guys say, ah, fuck it. you know, it doesn't make any difference, you know, nobody's going to look the hole in your sock. But he knew that the kid was upset and he had a better chance of winning. And I don't remember whether he did or not, if he wasn't worried about his sock. And that's what he did. He just got down his knees and folded his sock over. That That's, there's so many wonderful people like that in the sport that deserve to be remembered. Yeah, they do. They do. You know, Bill Miller, another one who trained James Tony yeah. and Saxon and... Yeah. A lot of those guys. Where can they get your book? Your book is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Yeah, that's the most places you can get it. Um, the next signing I have is at the Atlantic City Boxing Hall of Fame. It's the uh, wow. 30th of September. Um, okay. Some some of my friends were uh, giving me a suggestion. Uh, I guess it was yesterday, but I haven't followed up on it. Um, it was just one last thing I'll tell you. When I published Boxing Babylon, that's back when, you know, there were bookstores and real publishers and stuff. Um, they sent around to all the radio stations a little booklet um, about the books that were they were publishing. And um, so I got like maybe maybe 25 or more interviews on the radio. They weren't all huge markets, but they were all marked places you'd heard of, you know. And um, I, I said to uh, my editor, are these going to help? He says, well, they're not going to hurt. <laughs> but um, talking to my current editor um, that did this book for me, 
Um, he said podcasts have replaced that. So you have replaced a radio show. Okay. And I really appreciate coming on because we're going to sit here and talk boxing for hours. Yes. So let and me know when your book comes out. I will. I will send you a copy. And and um, uh, no one will replace you. That's what I wanted to say. You are, you are the preeminent boxing writer of, of this century and of the last century. And I would say you're up there on the Mount Rushmore of boxing writers. Well, that's very nice. But I have Jimmy to tell Cannon you, that, and I Ryan have imposter before. syndrome. You know what that is, right? Yes. And um, Bill Detloff said to me, you've got the worst case of imposter syndrome I've ever known. And, and it's true, but it drives me. It drives me to be better. And I always you, tell you that the people, my secret is I'm insecure. So well, I wouldn't know that from talking to you, but there's so many great boxing writers out there that you can see, including me. You can, uh, I'm not saying I'm a great boxer, but you know what I'm saying? That they can see your, inf you can see your influence on them. You know? Yeah, I guess I, I, you know, something. <laughs> When I'm writing, I, I know the subject, okay? I make it up as I go along. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's you know, I, I, don't, I don't do an outline. Um, I may make a few notes, but I actually make it up as I go along. That's just the way I do it. That's not for everybody. Right. But, you have uh, to do what feels best for you. Yeah, you got to, you know. And some people, you know, I, I tell them, Oh, it's all lies. I made it all up. Right. <laughs> they look at me and laugh. But hey, uh, boxing has done a lot for me. It hasn't made me rich, but it's made my life very enjoyable. And I've done a lot of things and been a lot of places and seen a lot of things that other people haven't. And um, when I'm feeling down in the dumps or depressed, I think about that. Hey. You know, you've yeah. done all this stuff, and uh, a lot of people could never have done that. So, yeah, whatever I am, I am, and I don't know. I'm not going to change. But uh, listen, well, say hello to all the Canadian boxing fans for me. There's I will. I, out there, and I think absolutely. the Maritimes was big at one time. Yeah, but it was. Now it's Montreal. I mean, Montreal is it for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's. Yeah. A I, I went up there for a fight. It was. Uh, it was great. I liked Montreal. Montreal's really the only European city in Canada. It's open 24 hours a day. And yeah, it is. It's, get it's a, whatever you want, whenever you want, at any time of the day. Yeah, I liked it. I enjoyed it a lot. I want to go back one day. All right, listen, I got to go. Okay, Thanks thank you so this. much. This is My great. pleasure, Do thank you. You don't have a, a link or anything that I can put this online. Yes, we'll get, I will get a link later today and I'll send it to you. Yeah, and I'll send it out. I'll give you some publicity. I couldn't. I couldn't do it beforehand because, you know, I didn't even know my computer was going to work. So right. uh, <laughs> we now will, I'll, uh, you know, I'll definitely put it out there for you. Oh, that's fantastic. It's been so lovely getting to know you and talking with you and we'll oh, do it again. Yeah, it uh, we're just like two boxing guys. <laughs> yeah. And we're, we're rare. We're rare. Yes, this. but thank God it makes life more interesting. Okay, I th hope everybody listened and enjoyed it. If not, when I, when I sell my book to somebody, I always say, I hope you like it. But if you don't, you're not getting your money back. <laughs> <laughs> I love right, it. Take care, man. I love you. I'm turning you, too. you off. Thank Bye -bye. you. Be well. Bye-bye. Okay.
Mike. Mike, you there? Michael.